Um, let me, um, how about if I take a question or two while, while people are still resolving the product issue here, and then I'll jump into my material. Uh, a question pertaining to what we've been talking about. What about the last 5% for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, brother, you have plenty to choose from. They're still around. There's a funny thing when you think about it with uh, this model of decision-making where it says that God essentially, when it comes to marriage, is God's going to choose your wife for you or your spouse. And, and um, again, this is said with impunity by people with absolutely no biblical authority. And um, think about the practical problem this causes. So let's say that God has chosen a wife for me. That's God's perfect will for me, that woman. Let's just say that that's the case. There's, this, there's a lot of good choices. There's one perfect God's choice. That's the choice he has in his mind that he wants me to discover by giving me the hints. Now, what if I get it wrong and I get married? I'm not marrying the woman God wants me to marry. I'm marrying a woman that God wants someone else to marry. But now she's married to me. So now, what is that guy going to do now that I'm married to his wife? He can't choose God's best for him. He's got to choose someone else, number two or number three. Now, that wasn't the one that God wanted for that person. God wanted the others. So when he marries number two or number three, he has just taken that woman out of running as number one in some other guy's life. You see the problem here. The dominoes begin falling. So on this method, all you got to do is have one person screw it up, and then everybody's married to the wrong person. <laughs> there was a line in a movie, I think is when Harry met Sally about this. Um, and um, I'm looking for it. I have it somewhere here in my my notes, um, where she says, you know, you'll, you'll spend the whole life married to another person's husband, is, is what, what she said, something along that line. You know what I forgot to read to you, and I wonder if this, if I still have it here, and there's just a couple more people here. It's a real funny thing. It has to do with fleeces, and, uh, yeah, here it is. It has to do with fleeces. And I mentioned there's a liability of fleeces because you can get false positives or false negatives when you put them out. And that's why I talked about levitating the piano or levitating the couch. But the, the, the eminent philosopher, uh, Bart Simpson, <laughs> um, had an observation that he made. Well, actually, he said something that pertains uh, to this issue of fleeces. And it, I think it articulates the problem. And... Um, Homer, in this particular episode, is in deep prayer because he has just received the news that his wife, Marge, is pregnant with their third child, which he's not excited about. So he's going to try to make a deal with God. Here's what he says. Dear Lord, the gods have been good to me, and I am thankful. For the first time in my life, everything is absolutely perfect the way it is. That's without the third child. So here's the deal. You freeze everything as it is, and I won't ask for anything anymore. If that's okay, please give me absolutely no sign. Okay, deal. 
In gratitude, I present to you this offering of cookies and milk. If you want me to eat them for you, please give me no sign. <laughs> Thy will be done. <laughs> and he eats the... Just a little humorous side of the practical difficulties. Now, I promised you a third circle. The first circle is God's moral will. God's moral will it limits you in your choices. And those choices are further delimited by a smaller circle inside of God's moral will, which is God's, which is wisdom. And this is why I call this the obedience wisdom model. And so you're, now th there's another circle though I want you to uh, just draw kind of overlapping the circle of God's moral will and overlapping the circle of wisdom. And I want you to call this personal factors, personal factors. Now, just for the record, I want you to make another smaller, uh, another circle outside of your entire diagram off to the side and make a circle and also title that personal factors and put a question mark there. And I'll explain why you have two of those circles. Uh, you want one circle, you, you have your... You have your circle of moral will and then your circle inside of wisdom. Now I want you to inscribe another circle that overlaps both moral will and wisdom so that part of it's outside and part of it's inside. It almost kind of looks like, well, it doesn't look like three of the clover anymore. But And then just make another circle somewhere out to the side and just uh, label that the same thing. These are personal factors. And... The question is, what place do, do my own personal desires play in decision-making? And the answer is, they play an important part in decision-making. When Paul is talking about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he, he dis, ends his discussion by saying, you know, if you want to get married, you can get married. If you want to stay single, you get single. But I think you'll be happier if you're single. That's Paul's opinion. Not a command, it's his opinion. So he's appealing to happiness as a, as, a, as a legitimate issue. Sometimes Paul made decisions like we talked about in 2 Corinthians. He said, I had an open door of service in the Lord, but you know, my spirit wasn't at rest. He wasn't happy. So I wanted to go be with Titus, so I went. So Paul indicates in these cases that our personal interests are significant, important. They enter into the discussion. However, they do not trump moral wisdom issues. So when you make your decision, you are looking to make your decision within God's moral will and within the smaller circle of wisdom where your personal interests also intersect. So can I follow what I want? Well, as long as it's not wrong and it's not stupid, yes. Why not? We do not need to be given permission to act within the area of legitimate Christian freedom. In fact, the concept of freedom is so strong in the New Testament that in certain matters of Christian freedom, God has forbidden the body to judge others who live differently than you do. Now, this is a verse that's almost always overlooked. It's either in Romans and Corinthians where he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols. But he said, who are you to judge the conscience of another? Now, usually it goes the other way, you know, you're causing me to stumble, you know. But wait a minute. Paul's got directives to other believers. Don't judge the person exercising their liberty in Christ. So there is a liberty in Christ that we are to allow and that have to do with personal issues, and some of those are conscience issues. 
And some of them are just personal interests. Well, there you go. You've got those. You, you, you can pursue those. Except when, and this is where our other circle, our other circle's out here, all by itself. When your personal desires do not at all intersect with moral with the moral circles and the, 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 uh, the wisdom circle, then you are not free to do your desire. You cannot follow your desires in disobedience to the word. By the way, this happens a lot with the sexuality issue, and in, indeed homosexuality. And I've asked people, people have said, wait a minute, you're telling me if I have homosexual desires that I have to live my whole life without fulfilling them. And my answer is yes. Now, the culture is such nowadays that people think, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable to ask anybody to say no to their sexual desires. Look, at I said no to my sexual desires for 25 years. Within two years after becoming a Christian, I became a Christian at 23, I, I got my sexual life under order. And I did not have sex with a woman for 25 years until my wedding night. So I'm not asking anybody to do anything that I wasn't willing to do myself. And even if I wasn't willing to do it myself, it still doesn't make it right, in my case or somebody else's case, to violate God's moral will. Because we stand alone before God in answering for our behavior. But here's a person saying, gee, my personal desires are so strong. That's so cruel of God. Why would he give me this desire if I couldn't pursue it? Well, you're presuming God gave you that desire, and that God's not going to give you a sinful desire. He doesn't tempt anybody to sin. So there's an example where that kind of comes into play, and when your personal factors overlap God's moral will and, and wisdom, fine, that's great. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, regarding giving, giving Paul says, let each one do just as he's purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. You're not forced to give. You ought to give as your heart is desired. So that's an individual choice how it goes about, how you pursue that. Now, I've given you these three circles that kind of overlap in different ways. Um, in actual practice, the sequence of decision-making doesn't follow that perfect order. But the elements have to be there. I mean, oftentimes, it's in the reverse order. Guys, you see a girl, and you think, oh, what a babe. I hope she's a Christian. <laughs> I hope she likes me. I hope she has discretion, you know, that kind of thing. So we're motivated maybe by personal desires. doesn't matter the order as long as the, that these, these, all these things are taken into consideration. So, um, and what's interesting on the marriage issue is what you can read first uh, through 1 Corinthians 7 with regards to marriage. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the decision to get married rather than the decision to, to be single. I mean, that's actually the, the first question. Regarding marriage, well, maybe you should be single rather than married. And he said, that's the first. Now, a lot of people don't even consider that because they, that, they're not, that's not part of their personal circle, interest circle, you know. And I understand, fine. There are some people who have the gift of celibacy. And they can, as Paul puts it, give uh, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Then there are others of us who 
Singleness was undevoted distraction, you know, and so consequently we are made for marriage, not made for singleness. Now, even those that are made for marriage in the sense that they, this is what they desire and they don't have the gift of celibacy, sometimes through an accident of their life end up being celibate. They want to get married, but they never end up getting married, okay? Uh, but that's not a second-class situation for Paul, from Paul's perspective, and he addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. And it's interesting the way he addresses it. He says, well, whether you get, you're single or married, there are pros and cons to both. Um, single people can serve the Lord more effectively. Okay, that's an advantage. However, single people cannot have sex. So there's a liability maybe for some people, all right? Now, there are pros and cons to being married, Paul argues. Um, married people can have sex, they say. I had a pastor once, I heard him and he, talking about to young people... Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know if I should say this. He's talking to, to the congregation <laughs> and saying, you know, save yourself for marriage. And then, 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 the, then the pastor said, once you get married, you can have all the sex you want. And I thought, pastor, you lie. You know, <laughs> anyway, that's sorry. So there are advantages to being married. You can enjoy sexual favors, but there are... Is this on tape? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> there are more... <laughs> but there are moral obligations. Uh, I should say you, the advantages of being married, but if you, it, it, and that is you can have sexual favors, but if you're married, you can't... Uh, you can't... You have to split your attentions. You know, you have family and God. So there's a disadvantage there, okay? But there are also moral obligations constraining each decision. If single people can't fornicate, married people can't get divorced. So Paul is laying all out the pros and cons. Now, if God's intention was that we are to turn to Him to ask Him, should I get married and who should I marry, this is the place where Paul would have outlined it. But Paul doesn't say anything about that here. He simply says... There are pros and cons to both sides. There are moral obligations on both sides. Choose what you think will make you happiest. That's basically what he says. So there you have kind of the moral model, the moral obedience, uh, the obedience, uh, rather, wisdom model uh, in play. Um, there's one other circle I want to mention here. And this is the, and this, uh, I actually saw it on one diagram. I don't know how it got there, but I, I want you to take all those overlapping circles that you have, and I want you to draw one big giant circle around the whole thing. All right? So everything that you wrote is inside this larger circle. And I want you to label the larger circle God's, anybody want to guess? Sovereign will. Exactly. God's sovereign will. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Kokel, I thought you said that God's sovereign will was not a factor in our decision-making because it is, it is uh, hidden, and th that I'm going to stand behind. God's sovereign will plays a different role here. In the process of our decision-making and living out the details of our lives, we are always aware that God has the liberty to sovereignly alter things anytime he wants to. We are always underneath the lordship 
and the sovereign designs of God. So if our well-planned out designs go afoul, we can still respond to God trusting in his sovereign control of it all. And this is what James has in mind when he talks about decision-making in James 5. Because James says something that at first sounds like it's contrary to what I'm suggesting that you should do. James says, don't, don't make your plans and say you're going to go to this town or to that town and you're going to make this profit or that profit and do these kinds of things. All such boasting is evil. And I've had people that say, well, there you go. See, you're making your plans. That's evil. You should let God make your plans. But that isn't what James says. First, I want to observe just something in the verse I cited, and then we'll give the next verse, because we have a principle that we never what? Read a Bible verse, right? Notice how Paul says that all such boast... I'm sorry, uh, James says all such boasting is evil. Well, why would... He doesn't say making plans is evil. He says boasting is evil. Well, how is... Planning to do this or that and making a profit and going to this town or the other town or whatever. How is that boasting? Well, you'll find out when you read the next verse. He says, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow to do this or that. So what you ought to say is this. If God wills, I will do this or that. So the point he's making is if you're making your plans and you're setting up your little fiefdom, you know, without any regard for the sovereign interaction of God in your life. You're doing it all on your own, and you're the master of your own fate and the captain of your own ship. That's boasting that's evil. That perspective, that point of view. But if your point of view is, well, I'm under God's sovereign hand, and I'm going to make my plans, and if God wills, then they will work out. And if they don't will, well, if, God, if they don't work out, well, then that's God's will too. And sometimes you have the best laid plans of mice and men, and all of a sudden something just drops right in the middle of, of, of the whole thing, and it's, there's a kibosh put on it. That's a closed door, right? Now, the thing about closed doors that are really closed is you don't have to make any decisions about them because you can't get through. Now, it doesn't mean you can't keep trying. But it means in that moment, you're not going to go there. And so it, I think it is entirely fair to see God's sovereign hand in the barrier that he has allowed, for some reason we don't know, to be in the way of your plan. So then you got to go from there. And you start with an attitude. Okay, Lord, you're in control. I don't understand why this happened. I don't know why I'm going through this kind of thing, but you're in control. So now I'm going to look around for another path. Now, I want you to think in light of that about what Paul says when he's describing his desire to go to Rome. In the book of Romans, before verse 18, there's a little discussion about Paul's desire to go to Rome. Okay? Um, by the way, I, can I just pause for a moment? I just want to apologize for making that jocular reference to marriage a few moments ago. It's probably ill-advised, and I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about it, so I just ask your forgiveness. It was kind of funny, but it probably wasn't appropriate, so um, make culpa. All right? Um, Paul's trip to, trip to Rome, he, he indicates there in, in the first chapter, and then he talks about it more towards the end of the book, his rationale for wanting to go. 
And it's interesting, he never says that God's leading me to go to Rome. He said, I want to come visit you. I'm writing this letter, and I want to come visit you. Now, why does he want to come visit? He says, well, I want to impart some spiritual fruit to you. I might be able to get some spiritual fruit and encouragement from you. He said, I also have a long-term goal, which he says is his goal, not God's goal, to preach the gospel where it's not been preached, and so I want to go to Spain and take the gospel there, too. This is all Paul's designs. No God talk here at all. He's giving his expectation, his plans, his pros and cons. And then he says, I have not been allowed to go there yet. I have been detained. But I'm going to keep on trying. And then his phraseology is, if it lasts by the will of God, I will succeed in coming to you. Now, there he's using the phrase will of God. Is he expressing the individual will of God for him that God has revealed that God wants him to go to Rome? Well, he's not made any reference to that at all. Um, is he talking about the moral will of God? Is it a moral obligation for him to visit Rome? No, it's not that. He's making reference, I think, to the sovereign will of God. He said, I have a good plan. I have good reasons. It's consistent with my calling as an apostle to be sent out and take the gospel to other regions. I'm trying, but I have not been allowed to yet. So I'm going to keep trying until at last, by the, and I'll insert here because I think this is what he means, by the sovereign purpose of God, I, I will succeed in my plans. What we see implicit in Paul's statements there is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. This is something consistent with Paul's gifts, consistent with his ministry, consistent with wisdom, and he hasn't been allowed yet, but he's going to keep trying. Did Paul ever make it to Rome? Yes, he did, in chains, but he made it. He never made it to Spain, as far as we know, but he had two, apparently two imprisonments, maybe between the first imprisonment and the second in which he was executed in the mid-60s, that maybe he made it to Spain. This is something we don't know. But he, he succeeded in coming to them, but in chains. So there's a, a, an example, a, a, a model, an example of the wisdom model, the obedience model, uh, how Paul implicitly applied that model in his own life in his decision to go to Rome. Let me give a, a, a bit of a summary here of the model, just so the details are clear, and then we'll look at some more examples. And here is how I'm going to summarize it. In the absence of a clear, definitive, supernatural intervention, revelation by God, if that's not happening... If you didn't have a bona fide wisdom, I mean a vision or, a, um, uh, or an appearance by Jesus or an angel gives you a direction or um, something like that, which probably isn't going to happen to most of you. It's never happened to me. 40 years now, almost as a Christian. In the absence of that, make the wisest, most expedient choice that is morally allowed. If God has not given you a direct command in Scripture, do the, do the thing you want that's wise. 
Sometimes the process of that is quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. Depends on the circumstances of each decision. But I want to cite here J.I. Packer, well-known Christian writer and scholar. And uh, talking about this model, he says, the principle is that the right course is always to choose the wisest means to the noblest end. I like that. Choose the wisest means to the noblest end. Namely, the advancing of God's kingdom and glory. Moral law delimits the area within which the choice must be made. God-given wisdom then leads us within these limits to the best option. God enables us to discern this by prayerfully using our minds, thinking how Scripture applies, comparing alternatives, weighing the advice, taking account of our heart's desire, estimating our capabilities. Some people call this common sense. The Bible calls it wisdom. That's a nice, that's a nice summary, I think. So do we see this model in play in the New Testament? I just gave you one example. Uh, here's the citation, by the way. It's uh, Romans 1, 9 through 15 is where you're going to get the bulk of that conversation by Paul. And in 15, 22 through 24. I'll take a look... Um, at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 3 through 6, there's a problem in the Corinthian church where believers were taking unbelievers to court. I'm sorry, believers were taking believers to court on civic matters. They were suing each other. And Paul is aghast at this practice. And, and, and he says to them, and I'll just read the citation because it's very clear, and I want you now to listen with ears that have been informed of the wisdom model and just tell me what you hear. Can you, by the way, just imagine the problem where you have two Christians in a dispute, all right? And each has a claim against the other and they're ready to go to court. Now, one way of looking at this is, okay, listen, we're sitting down, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to show us what he wants to do here. Let's turn to God. God knows best. Let's get God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. I've heard some people in, in, in church meetings with leadership, and they're talking about a thing, and, and, and they'll, they'll say, in, uh, the, the leader will say, okay, now we've all talked, now it's time to hear from God. So let's go to prayer. And I want everybody then to quiet yourself and listen, and you tell us then what you think God is telling us. So that's a motif. This is a, a way of approaching it, okay? Now, I want, you to, I want you to see whether, in the examples I'm about to give, anything like that is in evidence. So first example is in Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's what Paul says regarding this problem of people taking each other to uh, court. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? This is a certain type of argument he's using. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He said, if we're going to, uh, 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 I should say in this case, from the greater to the lesser, if we're going to judge angels, can't we even take care of our own problems? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is there not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? 
No reference to uh, hearing from God. He's shaming them because they haven't been able to produce one person of wisdom that can adjudicate this issue within the church without dragging our dirty laundry out into the public. Here's another rather stunning example. It's Acts chapter 15, and this is 1 through 29, so it's the bulk of the chapter. Acts chapter 15 gives the account of what's called the Jerusalem Council, where there was this very serious theological matter that had to be resolved. It was called the Galatian problem, and the Galatian problem was the question of whether the Galatians, who were Gentiles now, who were becoming followers of Christ, were obliged to live according to the Mosaic law. Did Gentiles believing in a Jewish Messiah have to live under the Jewish law? And so there was dispute about that. Now, Paul said no. And the book of Galatians is really written to address that question. But um, there was a council that was drawn up of which Paul was party and Peter was party and a bunch of the other leaders in Jerusalem where they all got together and talked about this. Now, can you imagine under these circumstances how important it would be given this conflict between those in the early church for the leaders of the church, the apostles and the heads of that community to hear from God. But that isn't what happened in Acts 15. When you read through Acts 15, you, 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 um, you see how the apostles solved the most pressing theological challenge of the first century church. They pooled their spiritual and intellectual resources by consulting the scriptures, verse 15 through 18. They looked at their circumstances, verses 8 and 9. They observed what God was doing in their midst, how God had saved Cornelius, for example. Cornelius the Gentile who received the Holy Spirit before baptism, before circumcision, just the same way as the apostles did. They weighed the significance of signs and wonders confirming the message of grace, verse 12. They argued and debated, verse 6, and then they came to a conclusion, verse 19 and 22. There was no attempt to hear from God. They did not expect God to give them a special message even for these dire circumstances, but instead that they believed that God's will would be expressed through the process of their deliberations. And then when you read in verse uh, 19, I'm not sure who is speaking here, maybe it's James, kind of pulling the whole thing together. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And then in verse 25, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind to select men to send a message to the, Gent to the, uh, to, to the Galatians. So up until this time, what's, what do we have visibility of? We have visibility of a process of disputation in which observations are being made of the way God is working in their midst and what the scripture has said regarding the circumstance. Then they come to a judgment on their own, which seemed good to them, and then they wrote a letter to the Galatians describing the conclusion that they came to. And in the letter, here's what they say. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And then they gave them their decision. This is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the whole text. What's going on there? Where did the Holy Spirit come? Why is he saying that? Now, I'll give you my judgment on this, what I think is going on. 
we have visibility of the whole process, and in the process, there are no revelations that are given. Had there been a revelation, I promise you it would have been included. But no revelations were given. Instead, they went through this process of adjudication on this issue and came to a conclusion that they said seemed good to them and was a function of their own judgment. And then when they went to address the Galatian church, they said, this is the Holy Spirit's conclusion. I think they understood that the Holy Spirit was going to work through the corporate leadership of that church. And they could look at the process of their adjudication of this problem with the use of the scriptures and the fact that they are apostles working together, coming to one mind on the issue, that this was evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they could say it in that way to the Galatians. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on no other burden to you. And actually, I think this is the way it operates. God has ordained a certain structure of leadership and authority in many different areas, in the family and in the church, and when the, when, when the, and in church discipline, you know, first, um, make that Matthew 18. Um, when, when, when there is a problem and two or three are gathered to affirm the conclusion, the details of the thing, then God is right there answering their question. This is another verse that's taken out of context. I am right there in your midst when two or three are gathered. That's an issue of church discipline. And that's a, a, a confirmation that, or an assurance that, when you follow God's principles here, the Holy Spirit is going to work through that. And I think that's exactly what's happening in this circumstance. We see Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 15, 36. Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That's Paul and Barnabas. And um, so what's their reason for going? Well, it just seemed like a good idea to encourage the brethren. Do they need any more directive from God? Apparently not. Acts 6, the feeding and care of the Hellenistic widows, that is the, the widows in the community in Jerusalem that were from Greek culture, though they were Jewish. They were being overlooked because you, you were the, they're the outsiders. And the local Jewish culture Jews were getting preference over these, uh, over these Hellenistic widows. And uh, here's a problem. So how do they solve the problem? The disciples, the apostles reflected, they have a job to do. They have a responsibility. It's to teach the word in prayer. It's not our job to wait tables. So choose from your midst. You see the exact wording. Um, select from among you, brethren, seven men, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Find people that are genuinely spiritual and have wisdom and let them put them over this problem. And so they, uh, they um, delegated the task uh, to the others. So, there you have the same thing in play, you know. And an acknowledgement of their moral obligation to do a particular task in the church and a delegation to wise people to accomplish this other need that needs to be met. Choosing leadership in the church. I'm stunned how often these passages are overlooked by local churches who are choosing leadership. Paul gives very specific directives on what church leaders need what qualities church leaders need to have. 
And you find them in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. What's interesting is Paul doesn't tell Timothy to pray about it and hear from God and see who God has chosen, though this is the way a lot of churches do it. We think these are the men that God has chosen for us. It's not God's job to choose those men, not according to Scripture. It is our job to choose those people, and here are the guidelines that Paul gives. It's interesting that a lot of times people think they are chosen of God for this purpose because of the feelings that they have, the subjective messages they think they're getting, and they overlook the directive right there in 1 Timothy and Titus chapter, um, 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus chapter 1. It, it's just amazing. Paul gives a list of objective criterion, and almost all of those criterion are character qualities. There's only one skill quality. And what is the skill quality of an elder? The one skill quality. Anybody know? Say it again. Able to teach. Why must he be able to teach? Because there are people in the church that are upsetting whole congregations, bringing false teaching, and they must be silenced. That's Paul's words. They must be silenced. That means every single person who, who serves in a position of spiritual authority in the Christian community has got to have a doctrinal soundness in their own understanding and be able to communicate those doctrinal truths to others so that the body of Christ is doctrinally protected. That's right there. Nothing about hearing from God, rather an objective criterion. And on and on and on it goes. Um, one of the biggest areas that people are concerned about are what about ministry? What about being called to ministry? And again, this is one of those things like led by the Spirit that has permeated the church. People are under the, the, the uh, I guess I'd have to call it the delusion, that the way God distributes ministry in the church is through calling. And in fact, with many mission boards or with denominations, if you are applying for a position with them in ministry, they will ask you specifically, what is your calling or describe your calling? Okay. Now, this evidences their conviction that God distributes ministry through individualized subjective callings and that they want to make sure that you've got that thing that's necessary, that God has put his stamp of approval on your attempt to get into their mission or ministry enterprise. So they want you to describe it. Now, one writer uh, raised this question. In fact, when he went to such a board, he said, well, first of all, what is that thing? <laughs> What do you mean by that? What is that? What is a calling? And the board then was in a bit in a quandary because every person had a little different definition. <laughs> well, so it's, it's kind of this feeling or this sense that you have, or it's this awareness, or it's this circumstances that are coming together, or where you believe God is telling or leading. And so there's all this language like that that amounts to some kind of subjective thing where God is saying it's okay. Uh, now, by the way, just on a practical matter, if in fact that is the way it happens, and indeed in any individual's life, God has made that call, why do you need a mission board passing judgment? 
with all your qualifications and looking at this and that. Look at if God has sent a person, who are they to pass judgment on God's call? So that's just a curious thing to me, you know. I don't, why should I fill out an application? All I got to let you know is that God has really called me. And if I can convince you that he's really called, then that's the end of the issue. You don't need to ask any other questions. Let's just obey God. Here's the second question he asked. First one was, what is a call? Secondly, where in Scripture is that required for me to do business for God? Where is that? Well, I'll tell you where it is. No place. No place. The word call is an English word that's a translation of the Greek word kaleo. So what I did is I got out my Greek concordance and I looked up every single place where the word call was used. There are 218 uses of some form of the word kaleo. And in those 218 uses, you have different definitions. For one, you have uh, call being the invitation to faith. Many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22. So that's the general call. The call has gone out. That is, the gospel message has gone out to all. Many are called, okay, kaleo. That's used in some cases. Um, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, okay? Then you have the word kaleo used in a second sense, which is the effective call. It's used mostly by Paul when he talks about God's work in bringing a person to the faith. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. 2 Timothy 6, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 1 Corinthians 7, God has called us to peace. So there is a general call that goes out to everybody. Then there is a call that pertains to the Christians who have responded to the general call. And they're the called. Now, as I'm looking up these uses of these words, I've got 218 times the word is used. I'm checking all of these off, okay? Boom, boom, boom. And so all of these that have to do with the first definition, all of these that have to do the second definition, great. Well, sometimes it's used uh, to refer to spiritual gifts. And that Paul was called as an apostle, okay? So there's a call that, in his case, he was actually literally called, Paul! <laughs> or Saul, in that case. Who are you persecuting, you know, so... So, um, great, okay, when I got rid of all of those references to call, you know how many references I had left? I had three. I still haven't gotten to the individual call to ministry yet. I have three verses left. I'll read them to you. Acts 13.2, where Paul and Barnabas are called on their first missionary journey, and that was through a supernatural revelation because we have the citation from the Holy Spirit right there. Acts 16.10, where there is a vision calling Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia, and the word call is used there. Paul has the vision, and he said, we assume that God was calling us to preach to Macedonia, and so we set sail for Macedonia. And then you have the Philippian jailer account, another supernatural vision. And then the third place it's used is of Abraham in Hebrews 11.8, the call of Abraham. Wait, where's all that call to ministry stuff? 
Where, where are all these believers that will have to be called into ministry? Where is that? It's not in there. It does not exist. Because God does not distribute ministry by calling. God distributes ministry by what? One word. Not by calling, but by what? One word. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. One word. What? Gifting. Right. Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Where are you supposed to serve? Figure out what you can do productively in the body of Christ. Then find a place to do it. And by the way, you have a moral obligation to do that. That's the First Peter chapter 4 passage where Peter says, as you have a spiritual gift, and we all have gifts by the Spirit, then use it. That's what his point is. Use it to the glory of God by the power God gives as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. He goes into a little more detail. I kind of compacted it a little bit, but that's what's in there. Use it. So you have a moral obligation to be useful to other Christians in the body of Christ. So you need to ask yourself, if you're thinking about ministry, and I hope every Christian is thinking about service because it's a moral obligation, where can I serve? Well, you might ask, what can I do? There's a lot of capabilities that people in the church have. Some, have, some few people have a gift of teaching. Some people have a gift of making money and giving money to other ministries. I heard a terrible story once of a man who, who made half a million dollars a year and decided to leave it all behind to live on $10,000 a year as a missionary. And everybody went, I thought to myself, if you can live on $10,000 a year and you make half a million dollars, how many missionaries can you put into business by living at $10,000 and still making half a million? What is that, like 50 almost? So what this person did, who had a God-gifted ability, apparently, of making lots of dough, is he gave that up and he became a missionary. Now, somebody might say, well, maybe God called him. Well, I don't know. All I got to tell you is this. That kind of calling isn't in the Bible, but effective stewardship of your gifts is. And if this guy can make so much money and he's willing to live on 10 grand a year, then maybe he should give 490,000 a year away to other missionaries. So there's 50 missionaries out there instead of just one. That is simple what? Starts with a W. Wisdom, don't you think? I, I admire the guy's intention. I just thought that the trade-off was not sound and not wise. God does not distribute ministry by calling, but by gifting. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, prophecy, discerning spirits, tongues, interpretations, etc., 1 Corinthians, and whether those are st all still for today is not my issue here. My point is that the apostle is saying we all have capabilities of one kind or another. Frankly, I think the kind of gift that is needed the most is the gift of helps. And since the gift of helps is needed the most, I suspect most of you have that gift. You think, oh, that's not very glamorous. Well, you know, we couldn't live without you. And I think this is one of the reasons that Paul says we should make a more fuss over the less glamorous gifts 
because those with the glamorous gifts like pastors and speakers, they already get too much attention. You don't have to fuss over them. Fuss over the people who aren't getting the attention but are still being faithful with their gifts in the community. So the pattern here is employ your gift in service as a good steward to God's glory. So I think taken as a whole, this, I hope that what you are feeling now is not frustration or discouragement, but a sense of freedom. Now, this is a teaching, by the way, that is all apologetics, and I mean, sorry, it's no apologetics, and it's all Bible teaching, and I'm mostly an apologist, but this is the teaching that more people have told me has changed their life than anything else we do. Now, the tactics is coming up on that one, but still, it's this because people have, in many cases, have been so, so captivated, uh, no, that's not the right, enslaved maybe is a better word to a false system of decision-making that has cramped them. Now, they haven't been able to let go of it because everybody else believes it, and they think it's a spiritual thing, but they have a hard time making it work. There's so much confusion. And I'm just here to say, forget about all that stuff. Quit trying to thread the needle, trying to figure out what God's telling you to do, and spend your effort and your energies trying to figure out what is a good, sound-wise decision. In the title of the book, just do something. <laughs> do something noble and good and smart. And start right away. Don't wait around. The days are evil. Don't waste the time. Get involved with other people. Talk with them. Lay it out before each other. I wonder how much in discussion, see, now it's September and young people are going away to college and so the choice for college was probably in the late fall and early spring. It's already behind us. But I wonder how many people who had Christian kids had as a requirement for the school that they would send their kids, not just the academic status of the school, but the, the vibrancy of, this, of, of spiritual life for Christians on that campus. Now, Harvard actually has a pretty aggressive group of Christians there, the Harvard chaplaincy. But... Um, was that a factor in the decision-making? How are your children going to survive spiritually when you, you set them free in that kind of environment? Is there a community there that's going to surround them that is a vigorous spiritual community that is committed to the authority of Scripture and is committed to discipleship and obedience that they can be enfolded in the way you have enfolded them when they've been at home? And if it's not there, don't send them. Because chances are pretty slim that on their own, they're going to do well spiritually in that environment, and that's more important than any degree. Was that on the checklist? Any decisions that you have to make can be conformed to this pattern. But it does require that you ask different questions does require that you be more biblically literate. Uh, it does require that you say no to your desires in many cases. Um, it does require that you're engaged more personally in the body of Christ. And all of that is something God wants. It does require that you grow in wisdom. Skill at living, not just being a youngster, a spiritual youngster who's good at taking orders. 